Thank you, Priscilla. Good morning. Good Sunday, windy morning. Um, hope you guys are doing well this morning. I want to point out a couple of announcements before we get started with our worship time. If you did happen to grab a bulletin, you'll notice there on the front page, there is a women's ministry meeting March the 4th at 10 in the morning, and it'll be here at the church. And uh, the next item there that I wanted to mention is the men's triple B. Uh, triple B stands for Bibles, Beef, sorry, and Bruise. Yeah, she knows it. Bibles, Beef, and Bruise. So uh, all men are encouraged to attend, and it'll be here at the church as well. So March 11th at 6 p.m., something uh, that we do from time to time. And it is really encouraging to be around other men that, that think alike and uh, the format is, is rather simple. We, we come together, we have food, we talk about Jesus, we pray a little, and, uh, and then we talk some more, so we have some fun. So I encourage you to attend. Uh, I am reading today the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your love and just for this, this opportunity to come together to worship you, be encouraged by the teaching of your word. And we ask that you bless our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with us now, church?
Oh, come to the altar. 
cross as you wait for the crown. Tell the world of the treasure you found. Maybe see it. Well, good morning. Good morning. Uh, children, you guys can go to Children's Church if that's where you're, you're going. I think we have our explorers over here and our adventurers go through the back these days. Juliet, are you confused? Oh, you're, you're trying to get somebody with you. I should mention, uh, because it does come up for our triple B's, that all the B's are BYOB for the triple B. In other words, you've got to bring your beverage your brew. Brews are acceptable, but you can bring whatever you want to drink. Your beef, you can bring anything you want to bring, but if you bring chicken nuggets, we're going to rib you a little. Some people have brought chicken nuggets to the Triple B. You can bring that, but definitely bring your Bibles. Okay, so that's going to be uh, on the 11th of March, and that seemed to be the way that we do that. So that's going to be Saturday. It's going to be here, but bring all your stuff, okay? So this is a, a low barrier to entry. Uh, for you, but just bring enough for you and for everybody that's coming with you, and that'll be all right. Uh, the other thing that we ought to mention is that we uh, have need of uh, scheduling a baptism service. So uh, if you would like to be baptized, if you haven't been baptized uh, since you trusted in Jesus Christ, uh, go ahead and let the office know. Uh, the exact date is TBD, but it's going to be pretty soon. So uh, please do that if that's something that you would like to do. Everybody understand? All right, good. It's available. And let's pray before we begin. We've got a, every time the wind starts blowing, uh, people start feeling yucky, and then we actually have some things beyond that that we ought to pray for. Uh, the blessings uh, that we've experienced also with people that are dealing with a lot of chronic illnesses right now. So we ought to praise the Lord for that. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this day, and we thank you for your word and the promises that it contains, especially the ones we're looking at today. Uh, but Father, we, we thank you that in the midst of a, a tumultuous world, a difficult world, uh, in which believing anything with assurance seems to be assaulted regularly, we thank you that we can know who you are. Uh, we can know that you love us, uh, that we are your children, and that you have good in store for those who love you. Father, we thank you for the confidence and the encouragement that we are able to witness here at El Paso Bible Church, uh, that you have not left us without testimony of what it is to suffer successfully, uh, victoriously, uh, the things of life. Father, we thank you for the blessing that it is to have stalwart, faithful people in our body teaching us each day of those things. Father, we do pray for comfort, we pray for strength, and we pray for healing. Now, in, the, in the same breath, in the same moment that we thank you for that testimony, we pray for life, Father, because we know that you value life. Father, we pray that you bless our time in your word today with understanding and clarity, that you would help us to embrace the truth of your word. And into your son's name we pray, amen. So, El Paso Bible Church, we're continuing this morning uh, in 1 John, and we're getting down to the end, right? Uh, first, there's five chapters in 1 John, so we're in the last chapter, we're in the last half of the last chapter, and 
It's important, even more important as we get to the, the end of the book. See, I hang out with some guys that, uh, like when they teach Ephesians, they have numbers to their lessons. They teach lesson, for instance, 627 out of Ephesians. I can't fathom such a thing, actually, myself, but I think when you teach 627 lessons out of Ephesians, you better make sure that you do a review, right? And sometimes they do it better than others. We're going to do a review uh, this morning, really going back to the beginning, because it is very important that we understand the purpose of this book as we come to its close, right? We don't change directions. We don't change in the middle of the book uh, the, the core principles, the basic topic and subject matter of the book as we go through it. And so if we're to remember those things, right? We remember that in 1 John, the very first verses give us the purpose statement, particularly important that we keep that in mind as we get to 1 John 5.13. And the purpose statement was that John wanted his audience to have fellowship with the apostles, the apostolic cohort. They had fellowship with God the Father and their son, Jesus Christ, and they wanted to have fellowship with the audience so that their joy collectively would be made full, so that their joy would be complete. And as we began First John, so number, I don't even remember when it was, months ago now, oh, we all agreed, and I don't think this, is, this has changed, that we want as much joy in life as we can get. Yeah? Yeah? Y'all follow the news a little bit? Probably a little too much if you're a normal American. I don't know whose crazy drug-induced idea it was to have 15 24-7 news outlets going on on cable TV or on the radio or everywhere you look. Uh, but it's murderous to your joy to look at the things that are going on in the world and uh, just a tremendous robber of joy if you let it, right? So we need to understand the importance of the subject. The subject is that <laughs> we should have fellowship one with another because that is the mechanism by which we experience the fullness of joy in this life. And so we want to have that. Nobody would decline the need for it or the desire for it in their life. So I hear people being confused by this book all the time. Not surprisingly, the confusion starts in those first four or five verses. So what its purpose is. We're not going to skip that as we go through. It is a life that John tells us is a life lived free from discipline, right? That he gives the instruction there so that we may not sin. But if we sin, we have an advocate. And he says that if we sin, we have a resolution process there, that we need to confess that sin. That we, in confessing that sin, we have forgiveness and in this context, at least, and I think broadly speaking, in much, many more contexts in Scripture, this idea of forgiveness is a fellowship issue, right? It's the thing that robs us from joy because when we sin, we are placed under a discipline by our Father. Yes? Fathers? Are you letting sins go without discipline in your families? Scripture says that you hate your children if you do that. God doesn't hate any of his children. Yes? Amen? Praise Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that God doesn't hate any of his children. Therefore, the corollary to that is that he disciplines all of his children. And confession takes us to the point of acknowledgement. And forgiveness brings us out of that discipline experience. 
Hebrews tells us this. I, w- I was taught varied things about how I was supposed to approach God's discipline in my life growing up. I grew up in church um, in a three-to-thrive environment first. Some of y'all will know what that is in a Baptist church. I just figured that you would have all your problems fixed in your spiritual life if you showed up on Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. Anybody else? Did you grow up in that environment? They, we, we call that the three-to-thrive environment. That wasn't the only input that I had. Um, and it's not a bad thing to be, you know, gathering with the fellowship of believers. I won't say that. Um, but we were, my wife and I were really taught that whatever we received from God, we were supposed to smile about. Yeah? Kind of Jesus juke your experience that everything that comes from God, you're supposed to be happy about. Well, Hebrews would argue with that. Hebrews argues with that. Discipline is not designed to be pleasant. And you ought to keep this in mind when you're disciplining your own children. You, they're not supposed to necessarily perceive of you as their best buddy when you discipline them. And if they do, you're probably not doing it right. Amen? Uh, I heard somebody say amen there, right? That's not the case. And Hebrews tells us, right, that that's not the case. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. In fact, my wife will tell you that there was a moment in which she decided that corporal punishment was no longer her responsibility. I have five sons and one daughter. My daughter, I don't believe, maybe she got spanked once. She denies this. Maybe she got spanked once. Not so with my five sons. Not so with my five sons. But my wife decided one day that she was out of the corporal punishment business for the boy when they began to ask her if she could spank them instead of me. And they dared to look back at her and smile as she was issuing the corporal punishment. Now, you may think I'm a caveman because we spanked our kids. I don't care. Uh, If you don't discipline your children significantly and without smiles on their faces, you're failing at something, okay? That's just the nature of the beast. Even the Bible agrees with me, so you're going to have to argue with Hebrews here. If you want to, I wouldn't suggest. No discipline is designed to be happy. It's designed to not be joyful, to be sorrowful. And so if we are experiencing a deficit in joy in our lives, it's likely because we're experiencing discipline, and we do need to rectify that. Now, remember that fellowship is not like justification. Justification is a declaration, right? You know, justification is the declaration that we are righteous. It's the thing that we talk about when we say, hey, we're going to heaven when we die. We're saved, a lot of people say, although you should refine that a little bit. Saved means a lot of things in the Bible, and not all of them. In fact, most of them do not refer to going to heaven when you die. But the moment of justification is a declaration by God in a moment in time, irrevocable, unchangeable, immutable, absolute, perfect, that makes your identity complete from the moment it happens, something from which you cannot be separated by any created thing. You cannot be separated from it. It's a gift, a free gift by grace through faith that makes you a child of God who possesses perfectly eternal life. It happens in a moment in time. It happens by grace alone, through faith alone, 
in Christ alone, and we like to add at El Paso Bible Church. And when we say alone, we mean alone. It does that for us. It is a real and actual gift. No amount of sin alters it. No amount adjusts or molests our justification, our identity. It is perfect from the moment we receive it. It is impregnable, unassailable. And that's not how John describes fellowship. See, many people in churches are, are, I think, unfortunately told that they must acclimate to the idea of contradictions in the Bible. Now, they don't say that. They don't say that. But what they're saying is a contradiction. What they call it is mystery. Mystery is not an excuse to state something as a contradiction, folks. There's really very limited things that are described as mysteries. The only things that are described as mysteries in Scripture are things that have been revealed, so they're no longer what you think. They're not Scooby-Doo mysteries, right? They've been revealed. They're not that kind of mystery. But people will tell you this. Well, your justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but there's a qualification. They'll say you can prove that that wasn't real. You can prove that it's alterable. Some people just treat it as a revolving door because they have habituated themselves to being able to logically embrace a contradiction that something can be free and at the same time costly. And that is a contradiction. Right? Free, without cost. Costly. Costs a lot. Do not habituate yourself to that foolishness. Things cannot be free and costly. The way that John describes fellowship tells us that it cannot be justification. It cannot just be a synonym for that because he talks about it in terms of vacillation, in terms of alienation and intimacy, closer and more distant. That it can be altered, that you can be placed under discipline instead of being in fellowship, and that fellowship is joyful, but discipline is not joyful, and you need to remediate your lack of joy by confessing sin and loving your brother. God disciplines all of His children, but we have confidence when we stand before Him because Christ, in this context, is our paraclete, our advocate, who gives us confidence in standing before Him and confessing those things. Sin causes problems for fellowship. Sin causes no problem for your justification. You know that? Once you've received eternal life, once you have been made a child of God, nothing changes there. But sin presents an obstacle to your fellowship. Loving the world, for instance. Loving the world and the things in it. That's why he says don't do that. Bad doctrine can do that. Especially bad doctrine about who Jesus is can do that, which he addresses. He says, some went out from us. They, they denied that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ, 
They went out from us so that they could be known that they were not of us. The only time that unbelievers are mentioned in 1 John, and they're the ones that are out. Everything else is talked about is in the local body, in the fellowship. Can be altered by heeding bad teachers. That's why John tells us to test the spirits. And the ones that confess Jesus Christ, who say the things that Jesus said about himself, that the Bible says about Jesus, are to be trusted. And all others are spirits of the Antichrist. Just to both build up our fellowship by doing these things, by avoiding loving the world, by avoiding bad doctrine, by avoiding people who teach bad doctrine. We're supposed to understand the love that has been bestowed upon us, which John says, I'm an expression of wonder how great this love that has been bestowed upon us. We have parameters, right? Now, I'm, I'm a little bit entrepreneurial in my mind. My dad was a little bit entrepreneurial. He was actually an artistic entrepreneur, which is a whole different animal, I think, right? You look at things and you have ideas about what could be, what could happen, right? You do not have to be entrepreneurial when it comes to the love that God has asked you, commanded you to exercise towards your brother. Does that make sense? You don't have to be imaginative. You do not have to create. Now, there's a lot of room for flexibility, but God has given us the pattern to emulate. He has given us the picture of what love is and the love that he has bestowed upon us. And we have an obligation to take that love that we've experienced and to love the children of God that way. Again, loving our brother, our ch- another child of God, our spiritual siblings are mentioned here. We ought to remember that is the primary topic. As I mentioned, it's nearly exclusively the topic. There's one reference to an unbeliever here in First John, those who went out from us. We've been saying this throughout, right, that an unbeliever can hate a believer yeah? Have you ever been hated by an unbeliever? Maybe they've been related to you. <laughs> an unbeliever that is not of your spiritual family, but is of your biological family, and they hate you. An unbeliever can hate a believer, but an unbeliever cannot hate his brother. And so when we see the references, right, in First John, that the one who hates his brother does not know God, that means that that believer who hates his brother does not have an intimate knowledge of what God wants him to do. It doesn't mean that he's an unbeliever. It's an impossibility for an unbeliever to hate his brother, his spiritual sibling. He doesn't have one. So don't make that mistake. It can wreak havoc with a fellowship when someone experiences hate and then just essentially excommunicates them. (laughs) There's a resolution to a believer who is hating another believer. The resolution is more knowledge of who God is. An unbeliever can hate a believer. An unbeliever cannot hate his brother. But believers are obligated to love each other. All the women are still frowning. 
so I'm still going to say this again. Love is an obligation. Well, see, one woman is smiling in the back. I'm working it, it's working out here. The women all frowned at me the last time I said, the first time I said, that love is an obligation. Because you've been told in our romantic culture that things that you do out of love are not done out of obligation. That is a line in a Hallmark card, but it is not in Scripture. You are obligated to love your spiritual siblings. You are obligated to seek their best interest. You are obligated to tell them the truth, no matter how they respond to it. It's an obligation. You can't always tell by someone's reaction whether you've loved them properly, right? No? Maybe you ought to be a little more adventurous in how you love people. Because sometimes as a pastor, when I tell somebody something that is the epitome, the absolute apex of the absolute thing that they need to hear in that moment to understand that I love them and that Jesus loves them and that God loves them and who they are as a child of God, they call me all sorts of nasty names. At least that's what it looks like on their face anyway. They may not say it out loud. Their reception is not what you would hope. And John tells us that the way that we know that we're loving God is not because somebody is smiling at us when we get done. Right? Because that's what happens when we're nice to people. Right? When you're nice to someone, they define the terms. When you're nice to someone, they decide when you're not going to be offended and when they're not going to be offended. When you're nice to them... Then they smile, right? When you love somebody, they might smile, they might not. But John tells us that you can know that you are loving them regardless of how they respond. John says that you know that you're loving them if you're obeying God's commands, regardless of how they respond. It's objective. And he says, even then, no matter how they respond, that those commands are not crushing that they're not burdensome. They won't destroy you. They won't make your life miserable. They will not crush you. You're obligated to do it. Now this part of First John is real important to me, especially the last couple of years. I'm not talking about pandemic things, although we could apply it to that. But at the same time as we've all been distracted by viruses and government responses to viruses, there's been something else arising in our culture. And it was there, it's been in seminal form my whole life. But the idea that you actually can't know anything, that has reached levels that I could not have even fathomed even in my own lifetime. I've started to really understand my grandfather here in the last few years. Some of y'all know some information about my grandfather. Not necessarily. He took to heart my admonition, don't worry about being nice to people. Let's just say that. That I'm tired of being told that I can't know anything. Are you? You're tired of, of knowing and not being told that you can't know if somebody's in the wrong bathroom or not? I mean, that's a pretty simple one, pretty basic. Uh, tired of knowing which governmental policies 
are favorable. You can't know that. There's no precedent for that. You're not an expert. I may not be an expert, but I'm also not stupid. You can't know those things. You can't know anything. I was actually told that by a, a, a believer recently that I, I was at a, a beekeeping event because I'm, I just said I'm not stupid, but I play around with feral honeybees a lot, so maybe I am a little dumber than I think. And in that environment, we were talking about the Bible, and he just told me as a believer in Jesus Christ, no, you just can't know if you're right. You just can't know. Talking about the Bible, you just can't know if you're right. Nobody believes that anymore. This part of 1 John tells me the opposite tells me that the most important things that I can know are tremendously, absolutely, and simply knowable. I can know these things. It's a tremendous blessing. We can know, for instance, in this chapter 5, we can know that we are overcoming the world. Again, whether we feel like we're overcoming the world or not. Do you feel like you're overcoming the world? Most days... Y'all, I'm telling you, 15 minutes of news is all you need a day. It'll start to make you doubt the things that Scripture tells you absolutely, that you're overcoming the world. When you've opened up a virtual sewer pipe into your living room of news that tells you otherwise, you're overcoming the world. Scripture says I can know that because I'm overcoming the world by virtue of of who I am in Jesus Christ Jesus Christ is overcoming the world. That's not a matter of your emotive well-being. That's a matter of objective fact. I can know those things. I can know that I have eternal life because an infallible God testifies to it about an infallible Messiah, God the Son, Jesus Christ. He infallibly testifies about an infallible truth that the one who has Christ has the life. I can know that. I can know that. I don't have to guess. I don't have to feel. I don't have to ask if that's just my truth to me. I can know that. And people tell me the Bible is irrelevant. I can know that. Verse 13 is where we are. That was all kind of review. Welcome to the end of the series, folks who aren't with us very often. 13 is one of the greatest, simplest promises in Scripture, again, along those lines. Verse 13 of chapter 5, 1 John says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. I have written these things to you who are believing. It's a participle. You know, it's kind of a person who is described by their activity. They are believing in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Very simple statement along the lines of the other knowing statements in 1 John. You can know this. Now, how do you know it? 
by believing these things that he's written. The question comes up, and it does come up a lot. How many things is John talking about that he's written? I had a a long and unpleasant conversation at one time with somebody over this. I don't even remember how many years ago it was now, but they come up with some regularity because people disagree. People disagree with me. Can you believe that? It's amazing. Astounded by it every time it happens. They disagree with how I understand 1 John. That's okay, but I'm right. Y'all expect me to think I'm right at least, right? I tell people this all the time, Josh, you always sound like you think you're right. Yeah, because only a nutter keeps talking if he thinks he's not right. Yes, I am at least not a nutter. I may be incorrect. These things I've written to you. Now, a lot of people try to force that into being the purpose statement of the book. Way down here in 1 John chapter 5, halfway through the last half of 1 John chapter 5, making that to be the purpose statement of the whole book. In other words, they say these things all the way back to chapter 1, verse 1, I have written to you, and that is not correct. Don't write that down in your notes if you're taking notes. That is not right. That is not the way epistles work. That's not the way letters work. Not in this form. Not in Scripture. The purpose statement can't be at the end. They don't do that. Your girlfriend might do that to you, young men. Might wait for you to disambiguate your relationship till it's almost over, gentlemen. But the Bible doesn't do that to you. Nobody's laughing anymore. Humans may do that to you. Is that better? Humans may wait to disambiguate their relationship to you until it's almost over. The Bible doesn't do that to you. The Bible is sensible. It makes sense. We've already had the purpose statement of the book at the beginning. It's not missing. We don't have to go hunting for it. John told us this is written so that you might have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with God the Father and Son, Jesus Christ, that our joy may be made complete. That's the purpose statement of the book. That's the overarching topic. That is the definitive outline for what we're talking about. And it's not weird, and it's not abnormal, and you can't reject it. It's right there. It's not missing. It's right where it should be. Don't you hate it, guys? When you're looking for something, maybe you're not as chaotic as I am. But even my children have this problem. I think it's hereditary. How did you expect me to find my shoes? They were in the closet. You had a point in your life where you, sometimes you've been confused by finding things where they're supposed to be. I have one son that takes it as a matter of creative pride when he would unload the dishwasher to find a new place for every item in the dishwasher. Do you know how crazy that is? How confounding it is, and I could blame no one else but myself. But the Bible, again, doesn't do that to you. The Bible is not looking for a new place where it can put something so that you can be confused for life about what it says. But it's a purpose statement at the beginning of the letter where it's supposed to be. So why would people reject that? Why would people reject that as their purpose statement? 
because they want to make every single test in 1 John as about being about who is a believer and who is not. That if somebody hates somebody, then they're not a believer in Jesus Christ. Right? These things I have written to you that you may know you have eternal life. If you go all the way back to the beginning of the book, all of those things are now a test for whether you're going to heaven when you die or not. Reject that foolishness. That is not what he's referring to. We already have a purpose statement. The purpose statement defines the topic. It defines the topic and the subject matter and the distinctions all the way through the book. These things I have written to you just refers to going back to about verse 10. And John does this several times in his book here. The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself, the testimony that God has given concerning his Son. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. These things I have written to you. It's not about your behavior. It's not about how you act. Believers in Jesus Christ, a lot of people will tell you, and they're correct, you, you cannot tell. You can tell how intimate somebody is with God somewhat based on their behavior. You can tell certain things about them. But many people will say that believers can sin just as badly as unbelievers. I'm going to tell you, actually, that's not correct entirely. Believers can sin way, way worse than most unbelievers. They really can. How do I know? The Bible says that, by the way. My son taught Sunday school here in, in my place a couple of weeks ago, and he pointed out the passage explicitly that Paul says that. Sin like that doesn't exist among the Gentiles. It doesn't exist among the unbelievers. Dude, stop sleeping with your stepmom. Even the pagans know not to do that. So you're, you're in trouble if you try to tell whether somebody's going to heaven when they die, even yourself, based on, how, on your propensity or your competency at sin. You, sh- you could sin, but you, you shouldn't be good at it. You're a very accomplished sinner. I'm a very accomplished sinner. <laughs> you're good at it. You've been doing it a long time. That's why when John says, these things I have written to you that you may know that you have eternal life, you can't look at how good or bad you are at sinning or how enthusiastically you sin or how sorrowful you are after you sin. You simply have to look at whether you believe in Jesus Christ and you recognize that the one who has the Son by grace through faith alone in Christ alone has the life because there is no other way that you can know today that you have it that I can know, that I have it, other than simply that I believe in Jesus Christ. And that God graciously has given me a gift because of that. There is a purpose clause here. 
He has a purpose so that we, in knowing this. Now, there's a lot of reasons why it's good for you to know that you have eternal life, right? Uh, one of the main things is that there's a tremendous blessing of joy that comes with abiding in Christ, knowing who I am, resting in who I am in Jesus Christ, and doing what He says to do. Two parts to abiding in Christ. There are many, but He has one particular one in mind here. If we know that we have eternal life, verse 14 says, this is the confidence which we have before him, the boldness, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. If we ask anything as a child of God that's according to his will, he heeds us, actually. He hears us, but he acts on it. Right. Used to be a saying floating around. I don't know where I heard it. Say, if you ever start feeling important, just try ordering somebody else's dog around. Anybody ever tried that? I have great Pyrenees dogs. They're famous for being yours and still not listening to you. I can't even feel important in my own house. They're very, they're very intelligent dogs, but they are very independent. I like that about them, actually. They exercise judgment. That's not a privilege you get in this life. In your ballot box, not even in your pastor's office. I'll give you a little hint. You can come up to me with all of your great grand ideas, and I might not do them. Right? Y'all didn't know that. Know it now. All right? You have a boldness to approach the throne of grace that you get nowhere else in no other context. That if you ask something according to his will, he'll hear you. He'll do it. He'll act. That's why it's so important in this narrow context that you know that you have eternal life because you know the basis for the boldness that you have in prayer that he will heed you, and out of the love that he has for you, he will grant your request according to his will. That matters to me. That's not the common perception of what prayer does in the world, by the way. Huge swaths of something called Christianity in the world treats prayer as if it is a form of penance. Yeah. It's just one step up from standing in a cold stream, buck naked, flagellating yourself like they used to do in the Middle Ages. You're supposed to bend God's arm and suffer enough by repeating phrases over and 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 over thousands of times in order to show God that you really, 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 really mean it. And make him essentially feel sorry for your suffering because you've had to do all this penance. Some places it's a daily prescription. Your prayer life is not supposed to be your means of suffering in this life. Don't perceive of prayer that way. Perceive of it as the bold activity of the youngest child in the family coming to the Father. 
I say that because my older children don't have that same boldness. The youngest child, you have big families, the youngest child is the biggest optimist in your family, isn't he? He thinks he can't ask for anything you won't give him. Yeah? Frequently, he's not wrong. Because frequently, he's seen the example of things that shouldn't be asked for, actually. It's very pragmatic. He pushes the limits, but not of acceptability. All of us are in that position. Boldness. We ought to know that that our prayer life is not meant to cause us to suffer and to coerce and persuade and manipulate the divine creator, the sovereign creator of all things that exist because we cry a little. It is simply boldness approaching him and asking for what we will. Why is that important? Again, we talked about this in Sunday school, big long bookends in the, in the book of Deuteronomy. These are narrower bookends that tell us the, the chunks. And within this chunk is, right, the idea of you knowing that you have loved someone because you keep the commandments of God. And John has to remind us that his commands are not crushing. Why does he have to remind us that his commands are not crushing? We talked about this. Some of y'all weren't here. That's all right. Because they feel that way, don't they? You pre-feel it. You pre-emote. You have a premonition of how you're going to respond to the pressures of having to love that person sacrificially. I can't do that. I can't do that. That'll destroy me. That'll crush me. I don't have it in me to love that way. And it's not just marriages where that happens, guys, but it does happen in marriages. And I can tell you as your pastor, it's not crushing, and I will tell you this. I will tell you The burdens of God are not, I mean, the commands of God are not burdensome. They're not crushing. But if you perceive that, if you have pre-emoted that, then the resolution is to boldly come to God with your request. Because we know that obedience is His will. We know that loving is His will. We know that that is important to the fellowship that He values and the completeness of our joy within the body of Christ. See, you could boldly go to God and say, God, I want to be wealthy. The Bible doesn't tell you that you're going to be wealthy. The Bible actually exalts people who went around in animal skins and got chopped in half and lived in caves. And these are men of whom the world is not worthy. That may or may not be in the will of God. But you know that the will of God is to love. You know that the will of God is to obey within the local body. And the wonderful part of it is you know that the will of God is to do those things so that you can live a life of joy. And it is a terrible, terrible 
feeling that you have, that the very thing that brings you joy, you perceive and I perceive of as a crushing, destructive, deadly burden. That's dang near psychotic, folks. The thing that is meant to make our life enjoyable and joyful, if you go into a, I mean, psychologists and psychiatrists have their perceptions of what that means about a person, but it is at worst, I mean, at best, just dysfunctional. That the very thing that is designed for your health, safety, and happiness is the thing that you refuse to do because it feels like a crushing burden. But we do that all the time in the church. I won't do that. You need to take that to God because we're sure of how he wants us to treat our spiritual siblings, our brothers. We can be sure of that. It's absolutely God's will, and he has absolutely promised to give us whatever we ask that is according to his will. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request we have asked from him. The confidence is there. The way that's phrased is the idea that we, they've already been given. It's as good as done. I've said that to people. I never say it to people that are unimportant to me. Pastor, are there any humans that are unimportant to you? Yeah, comparatively speaking. And we ought to cover this. We didn't cover it at the beginning. Visitors, I'm sorry that we didn't cover this at the beginning, but I normally, every once in a while, I notice people who are here, I ask El Paso Bible Church, El Paso Bible Church, why do we carry guns? Why does Pastor Josh carry a gun? because I love you, and I love you more than the nutter that might come through the door and try to hurt you. Comparatively speaking, yes, you are more important to me than anybody outside. Absolutely, without apology. In order to love you well, then we need to have this boldness to approach God, to ask the requests that we have, to understand what we perceive of as obstacles and how to overcome them. So that we're not burdened by the perception of something being crushing that isn't. He hears us every time. And there's not a magic script. There is not a list or an outline that you use. It's not penance. It is not punishment in and of itself. It is not to pay for something that's already been propitiated in your life. We're not trying to manipulate some capricious deity. Somebody argued with me once that the etymology of the word capricious doesn't mean goat-like. I disagree because I own goats. And they are capricious. Um... Most people in the world worship a deity. They may call him God. They may refer to him the same way that you refer to your God, the one that you worship, but that his character is entirely other, and and he is capricious. And when people go to him, even asking for promises that are given in the Bible, they have no confidence that they'll be given those, that their prayers will be heeded or answered. 
But you and I can, especially when we go. Say, God, I do not know how I can love this person the way they need to be loved. Give me the wisdom to know and the power to act in a way that is loving to these people, regardless of their response, regardless of their reaction, so that I'm being obedient to you. And he's promised he'll do that. He's promised. And he's never not kept one of his promises. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. Uh, We thank you that despite the tumult of the day, the confusion that seems to permeate the world that you have promised that we are overcoming in Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for the, the gift that it is to know these things, to know that we're overcoming, to know that we have eternal life, to know that when we come before you as your child, we ask according to your will, we receive it, that there's no ambiguity there, that we can know these things. And we thank you for that wonderful gift as your children. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Would you now stand with us? We'll dismiss with a song.